Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this service here at Faith Baptist Church in this Sunday school hour. As we all get settled in, find our chairs, get our Dr. Peppers, leave the room. Uh, sorry, I forgot to tell you. I am prepared today. 2 Kings chapter 2. Second Kings chapter two is a absolutely beautiful story. Now, most of you, when I say Second Kings two, probably don't have any particular story come to mind. But once you know what story it is, there'll be some sense of familiarity, right? You've heard about this story or you've heard it taught before, but I'll guarantee you, you don't know it the way you ought to. This is an absolutely incredible story about the friendship between a teacher and a student. We all have that teacher. You think in your mind's eye back to that person that invested in you, that taught you more than anybody else taught you, that they didn't just teach the subject they were teaching, they didn't just teach you about English, or they didn't just teach you about math, they didn't just teach you about theater or whatever else it might have been, they taught you about life. They taught you what it meant to be a decent human being in an indecent world. That is what Elijah was to Elisha. Second Kings chapter 1, it says in verse 1, it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. The title of our lesson this morning, Elijah's Final Days. His final days on the earth he spent with his student, Elisha. Let's pray and we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we do love you so much, Lord. We're so grateful for this time we can dive into your word, Lord. I pray this morning that... It wouldn't just be a time of scholarly exercise. It wouldn't just be a time of gathering facts and information about the Word. I pray, Father, this would be a time where we learn more about ourselves. We grow closer to you spiritually and emotionally, and that we are inspired by your Word. We love you and thank you and ask you these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we see number one this morning is the end of one thing. That's our first point this morning. The end of one thing. And it says in verse 2, Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. Elisha emphatically and without hesitation says to Elijah, I will not leave thee. You can feel the connection that Elisha has with his beloved teacher. He does not want to miss one moment of the time they have left together. Yes, he wants to learn as much as he can from the ultimate prophet of his day, Elijah. Who wouldn't? 
but he wants to spend as much time with his friend that he has left. Because when it comes near the end, time is precious when it's scarce. The phileo or brotherly love between these two had grown into a strong bond of friendship. They were more than just student and teacher. They were friends. And yes, one friend had a lot to teach the other friend, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't both still be good friends toward one another. Friendships come in all shapes and sizes. And sometimes we feel like it's a little bit weird to be friends with a certain kind of person. Some people might think it's a little bit weird to be friends with your teacher. Some people might think it's a little bit weird to be friends with your parents. Some people might think it's a little bit weird to be friends with your family. But friendships come in all shapes and sizes. And here Elisha found friendship with his teacher Elijah. They were so connected, Elisha would not leave. And then we come to verse 3. And it says that the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. It was known by the prophets everywhere that Elijah, that Elijah was to be taken to heaven in some sort of a glorious way. And you've heard that part of the story before, haven't you? Elisha taken up in a whirlwind. What is he taken up in? Whirlwind fire. But more specifically, what was in the whirlwind? Fire. Well, if you don't know, maybe it'll be a good surprise for you here in a little bit. Yeah, the whirlwind, which we've mentioned, you're right, that's true, but there's a bit more to it than that, and it's, uh, it's really an incredible thing. But the sons of the prophets, now the prophets had received this vision from the Lord that Elijah would be taken up in a whirlwind. And it was such an amazing sight to behold. It was so incredible, even in their visions, that they got so excited they told their families about it. They come in from their morning meditations. Everyone's around the breakfast table. And they say, you will not believe what I saw this morning. And they tell their families about it. And those young men, those sons of the prophets, they get so excited about what their fathers and mothers had seen in their visions that they go out and talk about it to each other. Man, can you imagine seeing something like that? That'd be so cool. And then all of a sudden they see Elijah and Elisha coming into town. How exciting that must have been for them. To these young men, this was an amazing thing. We would have loved the chance to talk to Elisha about what was about to happen. We would have considered that to be such an opportunity. Man, how cool would that be? You can talk to Elisha. He's right there about his his master, his teacher, his friend, being taken up to heaven and escaping the very concept of death. Wow! But, they failed to consider how the subject would make Elisha feel. 
they got so caught up in their own excitement, their own ambitions, if you will, that they forgot to consider Elisha's feelings in the matter. He's about to lose a friend. He's about to lose his best friend. And not only lose his best friend, but then who do you think the rest of the world is going to look to to take Elijah's place when he's gone? So there's not only a a loss of a dear friend, but there's also a, a heavy weight of responsibility about to fall on his shoulders. And we all know here how heavy responsibility can fall on you like a hit, like a dead weight. It can really bog you down. It can really weigh you down. And so as Elisha's contemplating all these things, he has all these people coming to him and asking about this very difficult thing. So he says to them, hold ye your peace. I don't want to talk about it. Let this be a lesson to us. Okay? We ought to be cautious about how our words might unintentionally, of course, but might still make others feel. Something you're very excited about might be quite upsetting to somebody else. Change can be difficult, no matter what it is. But a change that you're excited about might be terrifying to somebody else. And we should be cautious and considerate about our words. You do, as a matter of fact, did you know that the majority of what you say is not in the words you choose to say? You speak more through body language and inflection of tone than you do in the actual words that you use. So you can be very careful. You can use all the right words and still convey the wrong message. We should come off in the right tone, in the right way. We should be cautious about our words. We shouldn't be like the sons of the prophets. And then we see in verse 4, a sort of repetition. Elijah says unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And verse 5, the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And then again in Verse 6, the same thing. Terry, uh, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And then he says, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. And they too stood by the Jordan. Stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. We see here a holy tour. Right? They've traveled from one place to another to another, but I'm telling you these places were traveled to specifically. These places were of specific importance. The first place they went, we see in verse 1, was Gilgal. Gilgal 
was the first camp of Israel at the crossing of the Jordan. After they crossed in the book of Joshua, which I'm always being told I don't mention enough, so I'm mentioning it as much as possible. It was here that 12 memorial stones were taken from the bed of the river and were set up. It was after the miraculous crossing of the Jordan and here in Joshua 5.5 that the people were circumcised in preparation of their possessing the land. It was here where the Passover was celebrated in Joshua 5.10 and the manna stopped there at Gilgal. To Gilgal, the ark returned every day after having compassed the city of Jericho during its siege in Joshua 6. It was also here that Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord in 1 Samuel 15. And that Saul was both crowned and rejected as king, crowned in 1 Samuel chapter 11. It was at Gilgal also, in 2 Samuel 19, that the people assembled to welcome David as he returned from his exile beyond Jordan during Absalom's rebellion. Gilgal was a place of incredible significance, not just historically, but spiritually. It was the place where it all got started. It was the place where Joshua first began to conquer the promised land. He first began to claim God's promises to him there at Gilgal. That was the place they made their oath permanent. They, were, they took the circumcision promise. That was the place the manna stopped. God was no longer handing it to them. Now they had to go out and they had to earn their promises. You know, when God makes us a promise, sometimes we get upset when we don't see it, but sometimes we, like Joshua, have to go out and earn our promises. Sometimes we have to put feet to our prayers. Sometimes we have to go march around Jericho in order to make that promise happen. They couldn't just sit at Gilgal and wait for God to hand them the land. They had to get up and get to work. Gilgal was the place where it all got started. It was the place where they saw God win a battle for them in an incredible way. Gilgal. Then from Gilgal, they traveled to... Does anybody know? We just read it, verse 2. Elijah and Elisha travel from Gilgal to Bethel. Bethel. Does anybody know what the name Bethel means? Isn't it God with us? No, that's Emmanuel. Bethel, um, God. the house of God. The word Bethel means the house of God, and it was here that Jacob, in the book of Genesis, came on his way to Padanaram. Now, what was in Padanaram? He had just cheated his brother out of his birthright. His brother threatened to kill him, and he left town on his way to Padanaram, where he would spend many years and he would find his two wives that's the place where his uncle lived was Padanaram 
And on his way to Badanaram, he set up for a pillar the stone which had served as his pillow in Genesis 28:18, poured oil upon it and called the name of the place Bethel. Because it was there he received the vision of... It's a pretty big vision. That would be Joseph. Huh? That would be Joseph. Okay. <laughs> Jacob had one brother. His name was Esau. That was the Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder was seen by Jacob at Bethel, at the house of God. So he poured oil upon the, the rock that he used for his pillow, and he called the name of the place Bethel. Then Jacob revisits the place on his return from Padanaram back home, where along his way he's told that his brother is waiting for him with a lot of strong men. So he stops along the way, just so happens to be at Bethel, and there he has an incredible encounter. He wrestles with the Lord. All night long, the Lord gets tired of uh, wrestling with Jacob, so he touches the inside of his knee, and it becomes hollow. He can't walk on it anymore. And for many years, it was tradition by the Jews not to eat the sinew of any animal they ate in respect for God removing the sinew from the knee of Jacob there while they wrestled. And it was there at Bethel, and it was the wrestling match that caused God to change his name from Jacob to Israel. From the trickster, the supplanter, the child, immature, to the prince of Israel, the prince of God, is what Israel means. All of this took place at Bethel. The, the country of Israel got its namesake at Bethel, the house of God. Another stop along the holy tour. Next, they left Bethel to go to verse 4. Jericho. Jericho. Now I don't need to tell you about Jericho. Jericho was the place where they received their first great victory as Joshua began to conquer the Promised Land. Every child who sang that song knows this story. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But it's also the place of Joshua and the children of Israel's first great defeat. Because as they left Jericho, they headed straight into battle without thought, without prayer, into Ai. Because if they could take Ai, they could divide the land in half. And the entire Holy Land could not unite against them. They'd split it in half, the north from the south. And so they rushed headlong into Ai and were utterly crushed. And learned a very important lesson. 
And then it's from Jericho they traveled to the River Jordan. Now before they were at Gilgal, they had to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River, as Israel went to cross it, parted. But there was something different about this parting. Does anybody remember what it was? We've talked about it before, but it's been a while. You see, as they crossed the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea, and then they crossed. But at Jericho, they had to take a first step of faith. The river would not part until the first priest went to go put his foot into the water. And as they walked, the water would part for them while they were walking. You see, the Red Sea was like salvation. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. He opens it all up to us. He reveals it all to us. And then we trust him after we've sort of seen it through the eye of faith. But the Red Sea is more like the Christian life. It opens up for us with each step of faith that we take. The whole river doesn't open at once. Neither does it begin to open until we begin to step out by faith. I take this step, that bit of water parts, then the rest of it won't part till I begin to walk through it. This holy tour that Elijah and Elisha are going through, can you imagine the lessons Elijah is giving Elisha in these final few precious moments they have together? The lessons that can be learned from these holy places. I would love someday to be able to travel to the holy lands and see them for myself. Also, concerning the Jordan River is mentioned a lot throughout Scripture, but one of incredible significance is in the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist is often referred to as baptizing, quote, beyond the Jordan. And so they take this holy tour, and they've seen all of these things. And then in verse 9, it says, It came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. Elijah, Elijah, uh, Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now somebody tell me the word spirit there in verse 9. Is it capitalized? It is not. That means we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. So if we're not talking about the Holy Spirit, and we're not talking about, obviously, Elisha being possessed by the spirit of his old teacher, which would be ridiculous, then what could we possibly be talking about? Well, we're talking about a different kind of spirit. 
we're talking about having spirit in the same way someone might have school spirit. You know, that X factor, that thing that makes Elijah so amazing and so special that people were talking about him for centuries after his death. The reason that Peter and James and John were so excited to see Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Whatever it was that made Elijah so amazing and so incredible, that's what Elisha wants a double portion of. Your attitude, your spirit, your heart, Elijah, I want a double portion of it. In truth, however, what made Elisha so amazing and so special was that he was given access to the power of God by way of the Holy Spirit. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all the people throughout the Old Testament that did amazing things by faith. And by faith they did this, and by faith they did that. And all of the incredible stories, the most amazing things you've ever heard of throughout Scripture were done because these people weren't amazing in and of themselves. They were made amazing because of their faith in God. Because throughout the Old Testament, every once in a while, God would choose a special person. They'd be a chosen one, if you will, and they would be given special power of the Holy Spirit. This wasn't given to everybody. It was very rare occasions and on very special people. David was chosen to bear the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Elijah is another one such as these. Abraham, Moses, these men were handpicked in their day to bear the amazing and incredible power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Bible says, in the book of James chapter 5, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Sometimes we see prayer like, a, well, there's nothing I can do anymore. May as well pray. Just leave the rest up to the Lord because there's nothing else I can do. So since I'm out of other options, I might as well pray now. But the Bible here says that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. It doesn't say prayer availeth much, though, does it? It says the effectual fervent prayer. Your prayers should be fervent. They should be emotional. They should be powerful. They should have some heart behind them. But it's not just the effectual fervent prayer availeth much, is it? It's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God is inclined to listen to those that listen to him. You wouldn't want to listen to somebody who always ignored you and blew you off, would you? If somebody was always not listening to everything you had to say, and they came to you wanting to tell you something, you wouldn't be so inclined to listen to them, would you? The Lord's no different. If you're not going to listen to God, He's not going to listen to you. The effectual per fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, which is another word for Elijah in the New Testament, 
was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just like us. He was a human being. Cut him. He bled. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He felt the same things we did. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth his fruit. What's God saying here? He's saying the same power Elijah bore in the Old Testament we have access to right now because we have more than Moses ever had. We have more than Elijah ever had. We had more than Abraham could have ever hoped to have because we have more than a temporary coming on of the Holy Spirit by a chosen one. We have an army of believers powered by the Holy Spirit within their very spirit, within their very essence, within their very being, ready to take on the entire earth. We have the power of the church, the body of believers, charged empowered by the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit within them. We have more than a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And then it says in verse 11, what time is it? 10.31. Okay, I got plenty of time. In verse 11, it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, and behold, Rolls are rolls. It's not every day you I get got to shoot, shoot a my nerf. mom. I know. It's not every day you get to shoot a nerf dart at your mother. All right. You guys ready? We're, we've come to the pinnacle. We've come to the big moment in the story. In verse 11, it says... There appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Let me see if I can paint this picture for you. It may very well have been fire, exactly as the Lord says, but it might have appeared by the author of this book to be fire because it was such a brightness that he had nothing else to compare it to. It was bright like fire. It might, may, might have been, may have been, that this chariot, these horses, had been so long in heaven in the presence of the Lord that they glowed like fire. And as it beamed down from heaven, it parted Elijah from Elisha. It separated the two. It stood between them. Elijah stepped into this glowing, fiery chariot and ascended like a whirlwind back up into the portal of heaven. Heaven, by the way, is not up. Neither is hell down. They're in completely different places altogether. They live, they exist outside the realm of true physical existence. They're spiritual places. So he ascends up like the Lord. That's why the Bible says that the, the sky will roll back like a scroll. It's almost like a portal to heaven opening in the sky. 
and Elijah ascended up to it, the Lord ascended up to it, and we one day will ascend up to it as well. And he's taken up by this glowing fiery chariot in a whirlwind up to heaven in the presence of his beloved student. And in verse 12, we see Elisha saw it and he cried. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And Elijah was gone. And he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them in two pieces. How sorrowful he was to lose his friend. Happy for him. I'm sure, what greater honor can a man have than to be told, you don't have to go through the, the shadow of death. You can just come up. You have, been received, you have received honor from the Lord. We're going to send you a special ride. Just step into this chariot, and you get to come on up. You don't even have to die. There's only been a handful of people in all the world that have been able to say that. Not even Jesus could say that. Jesus had to die. Jesus himself had to pass through the shadow of death, didn't he? Enoch and Elijah. And that's it. Until the day the Lord returns to earth, those that are found alive, having faith in their hearts toward the Lord Jesus Christ, they too will not see death. Could be today. Though that's a lesson for another time. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. The mantle did not go to heaven with Elijah. The mantle stayed behind. Because if Elisha didn't take up the mantle, nobody ever would. If Elijah wasn't going to do the work, nobody ever would. I decided a long time ago, if, somebody, if I don't stand up and preach the way the Bible's supposed to be preached, teach the Bible the way it's supposed to be taught, without agendas, without pushing forward the machine of business, letting purely and unfiltered the Word of God, there was nobody else left that was going to do it. I was going through one Sunday night, you know, having gone to church the way I have my whole life, and especially since I've been saved, I've had a Sunday night service, you know, pretty much my whole life. I've been going to Sunday night services from the time I was a teenager till I started the church. So every once in a while, I feel like I, you know, want to get on Facebook and see who's streaming their services and watching them. I watched probably four or five churches that claim to have similar doctrine. People I knew. And as I watched it, I thought, what happened to them? That's not the kind of preaching I remember. Is nobody left preaching the pure word of God anymore? Is everybody got an agenda now? And so I decided if I didn't do it, nobody would. But you know, I can't do it alone. And we need more than just a preacher 
that's going to do it the way it needs to be done. We need a church. We need a body of people. If you don't stand for the Bible, the way it's meant to be stood for, nobody will. If you don't pick up the mantle, it will be lost for an entire generation. It will have to be completely rediscovered from scratch by somebody else. We are about to lose the pure truth of God's Word to the machine of church business. It's just us, guys. We're all that's left. So let's take it make something out of it. Maybe there'll be some people that come along with us. Maybe somebody will come along one day and say, you know what, I want to stand for that too. I want that to grow. I want it to come back. I want church to be the kind of thing that gives people hope, that gets people excited, that's fun to go to church, that we're shooting Nerf darts at each other. Not each other. I'm shooting them at you. You can't shoot them back at me. But uh, we ought to pick up the mantle. Because if we don't, Nobody will. And then we see number one was the end of one thing. Number two, the beginning of another. I talked about change earlier, right? How hard change is in life. And for some people it's very sad and very tragic, but for some people it's exciting. Why? Because the end of one thing is the beginning of another. The end of one job is the beginning of a brand new one. I have seen in my life both of my parents work jobs that they worked and they made the best out of, but they now both work jobs that they like a lot more than the jobs they had before. And the ending of one career may be the beginning of something even better. The moving away from one house might be the moving into a house that's even better. The selling off of one car might be the buying of a car that's even better. The end of one thing can be the beginning of another. So the end of the ministry of Elijah the prophet, and what a glorious ministry it was, is not just an ending. It's a beginning. The beginning of the ministry of Elisha. We see in verse 15, it says, When the sons of the prophets which were to view Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah just rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold, now there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest, peradventure, the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. Elisha saying, I know where he's at. You're not going to find him. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. I feel Elisha's frustration here. Don't you? Feel the frustration Elisha's feeling right here, where he's like, I watched him go up to heaven in a fiery chariot. He's not going to be on some mountain. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but maybe we can just check. And he's like, why would you check? I just took, it was on fire. No, yeah, 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 but can we just check? Guys, he's not here. No, I don't know, I know, I know. We're going to go check. Until finally he was like, you know what, fine, just, just go. Just go check and you see for yourself. And they were gone, 50 guys, three days, found nothing like he said. 
and I can't imagine. They got back and he was like, I told you so. We've all wanted to do that before, right? I created this thing called the Neener Neener Dance. Because it was so frustrating one time, I'm trying to tell people this is what's going to happen. They don't listen to me, and it happened exactly like I said it was going to, and I created the Neener Neener Dance. I can't do it on camera because it's slightly not church appropriate. It's not inappropriate, but there's some dancing involved, you know. But Amanda knows exactly what we're talking about. Elisha here was like, fine, fine, just go, just go. The doubt of the sons of the prophets. But then we come to verse 19. It says, The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth. But the water is not, and the ground is barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt therein. And said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. He took salt and threw the salt into the water and the spring started to flow water. Now that's odd, right? Because what does salt do? Amanda, when you're cooking and you throw salt into something, what does it do? It adds flavor. But also what does it do to the liquid? You put a lot of salt in something. It sort of dries it up a little bit, doesn't it? Salt you don't imagine to be something that's going to produce more liquid. Salt, you imagine, to be something very dry. Right? He's throwing salt into the spring and water comes out. That's amazing to me. Much like if you were to pour water on wood and it still caught fire. Where have we heard that story before? It's what Elijah did to the prophets of Baal, yes? And now we're seeing Elisha do something similar. He's producing water with salt and the springs bring forth and there's life and there's abundance and there's water and there's health and there's joy and there's happiness that Elisha was able to bring forth by the power of the Lord this was Elisha's first miracle and it was a big one he saved an entire town and then we see I'm going to end on kind of a dark note it's kind of an intense story here. But it's a story about showing respect to God and his people. Verse 23 says, uh, this is Elijah's first curse, by the way. And it says, He went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city, and mocked him, and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! I catch your attention a little bit, Josh? A little bit? They hurt your feelings? You want to see what happens to him? Let's see what happens to him. And he turned back and looked on them and said, Curse, Cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. Are you happy now? Not really. 
And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. Yeah. You see, we, we kind of have this attitude in our society that kids kind of get away with whatever because they're kids. They're just children. They don't know any better. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. I've got two kids. I can tell you. Yeah, they do. They know better. God's got a special place in his heart for kids. Jesus said, suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me. He said, uh, anybody who harms these children, it would be better for them to hang a millstone around their neck and jump into the ocean than it would be to face me on the day after they hurt these children. God's got a special place in his heart for kids. But the Old Testament days, the days of Elijah and Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God, was to be feared and respected. You remember the story when David was about to be anointed as the next king of Israel? Samuel came into town there. Remember that? Mm-hmm. You remember the elders met him as he was coming into town. They were terrified. They were scared to death. Why? Because Samuel was a prophet of God. And he might send two she-bears into town to tear them to pieces. He might send fire from heaven to burn their homes and to kill them alive with fire. The prophet of God was feared and respected because God was feared and respected. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now we live in what's called the New Testament age of grace. What does that mean? Well, basically it means God's not going to send fire to bring your house down because you chose to tell the lie. You can mock the preacher. I don't have a bald head like the rest of my family yet, but I'm sure I'll get there one day. And I'm sure if children were mocking me on my way to church, I wouldn't have the power to sick two she-bears on them, even if I was so inclined. But the name of God ought to be feared and respected more now than then. Why? Because he could still send those bears. He could still send that fire. He chooses not to. He chooses to let you get away with your smart mouth with your ego, with your blasphemy and your frustration and your anger, and you talk to him and take out your anger and your rage and your frustration on him, and he lets you get away with it. When at one point in time, a man was killed for catching the ark as it was falling off a cart. David was moving the ark in a new cart, and he had people standing by that weren't priests, and it started to tumble, and the guy was like, oh, oh, and he was dead. And you get, and there are people cussing him out today, and they get away with that. We should have more respect for God now than they did back then. Respect and fear for the name of the Lord. I don't want to be feared, and I'm not asking for respect for myself. I'm asking for that for the Lord. Let's show God some respect. So we won't get eaten alive by two she-bears. All right, well, that is our lesson for this morning. Thank everybody for watching and being here this morning, and we will be back at 11 o'clock, assuming it's close to 45. It's 50. It's 50. We'll be back at 5 after.